Good morning. It's great to be with you and to have this opportunity to open up God's word together with you. Uh, I want to invite you to join me again in a brief word of prayer, and then we will look at God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the one who speaks. It is your word that we respond to, but we cannot hear, nor obey, nor understand apart from the work of your spirit. So pour out your spirit to lift up our eyes, to behold your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be considering chapters 1 and 2 of Luke's gospel, culminating on Christmas Day with the account of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2. Today, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 38. If you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find that passage or those, uh, those verses on pages 855 and 856 of the Bible we've provided I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it in a few moments, and I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open because we're going to be looking often at the passage in our time together this morning. I wonder if there's anyone in your life who you've lost touch with. Maybe it's a member of your immediate or extended family who at one point you were in regular communication with, but for one reason or another, over time, you've fallen out of touch with. Or maybe it's someone who was once a close friend. Maybe you spent tons of time together earlier in life, and your life was shaped by your friendship with them, but over time, life sent you on different paths, and basically now you never hear from them. Or maybe it's someone, a a friend or family member, who you don't hear from anymore, not because you've slowly fallen out of touch, but because they they just have stopped returning your calls or your texts or your emails. How long would it take before you stopped reaching out? How long would it take before you just kind of stopped thinking about them altogether? How long would it take before the sting of that relationship ending subsided altogether? Six weeks? Six months, six years, maybe, maybe this thing never fully goes away, but you just eventually move on. I bring up those situations because in a small way, they're similar to the situation the Israelites had been facing in their relationship with God prior to the events recorded in our passage this morning. You see, for, for nearly 1,500 years, the Israelites enjoyed a unique relationship with God. He was their God, and they were his people. He promised to be with them and keep them. He he dwelled among them in the tabernacle, and then later, the temple. He, He gave them his laws and taught them how to live. And when they fell short of his standard, he sent prophets to them who would call the people back to covenant faithfulness. No other nation on earth enjoyed a relationship with God like the Israelites did. But after centuries of persistent disobedience, God kept his promise 
sent them into exile among the nations. He eventually brought a faithful remnant back to the land to rebuild the temple, but things had clearly, clearly changed in their relationship. His glory never filled the temple again as it once had. And though he sent prophets to them from time to time, eventually even the prophets fell silent until God was altogether silent. One year passed. Five years passed. Ten years passed and no word from God. Twenty-five years passed. Fifty years passed. A hundred years passed. Two hundred years passed. Three hundred years passed. Four hundred years passed. No word from God. And that is where Luke's gospel picks up. It has been 400 years since God has spoken. If someone had, had, had ghosted you, for the older folks, ghosted is just completely falling out of touch with somebody, just disappearing altogether. If someone ghosted you, how long would you hold out hope that you'd hear from them again? A day, a week, a month? How about 400 years? But we're going to see that God shatters the long silence. And he does so by predicting the births of two, two children who would change the world as we know it. And wouldn't you know, these promises come to two very unlikely individuals. I honestly can't think of a better book to have been preaching through than Genesis to prepare us for what we find in our passage this morning. And if you've been here through our series in Genesis I assume you'll see lots of connections to our passage today. So let's go ahead and turn to the text. I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 38 for us now. This is God's word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had de have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, 
and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If you're taking notes, the main lesson we're to take away from the birth predictions of John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth is that the culmination of God's plan of redemption has begun. The culmination of God's plan of redemption has begun. We're going to consider that lesson under two points, two predictions. Prediction one, the birth of John the Baptist. That's verses 1 to 25. And prediction two, the birth of Jesus. That's verses 26 to 38. And taken together, we'll see that these birth predictions signal that the culmination of God's long-promised plan of redemption has begun. So, Prediction number one, 
the birth of John the Baptist. With the birth of John, with the prediction, the birth prediction of John the Baptist, Luke signals that the culmination of God's plan of redemption has begun. Verses one to four of Luke's gospel form the introduction to his gospel as a whole. Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus to provide him a carefully investigated account of Jesus' life and ministry so that Theophilus could be certain about the things that he had been taught about Jesus Christ. And interestingly, we find that Luke, the careful historian, doesn't start his gospel with the beginning of Jesus' ministry, like Mark and John do, nor does he start Jesus, uh, his account with Jesus' birth, like Matthew. Instead, he starts with the day God broke his 400-year silence by predicting the birth of John the Baptist. But before we even get to the prediction of John's birth, we see that something big is about to happen. And we see that in nearly every detail of the passage. But notice first what we learn about John's parents in verse five. You can look there with me. His father, Zechariah, was a priest and his mom, Elizabeth, was a descendant of Aaron. Can any of the kids tell me who Aaron was? You can raise your hand if you know who was Aaron. We're gonna go to the back right there. I don't know your name. What's your name? Johnny? Johnny, who is Aaron? Moses' brother, and what else? What was his job? Can anyone tell me what Aaron's job was? What job did God give him? We'll go to the other one who raised his hand. He was the high priest of Israel. So John's parents, Zechariah, was a priest, and his mom was descended from the first high priest of Israel. Luke is highlighting their unique spiritual pedigree, but their vocation and spiritual heritage aren't the only unique things about them. Look at verse 6. They were righteous before God and walked blamelessly in all his commandments. Just got to think back to the book of Genesis. Where, where did we first hear this? The first person in the Bible that's described as righteous and walking blamelessly before the Lord was Noah. Why is that important? Because from Noah would come one who would bring relief from the curse of sin. That's not the only connection to Genesis we see. Look at verse seven. Zechariah and Elizabeth had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in age. Obviously bringing to mind Abraham and Sarah from the book of Genesis. With these details, Luke is showing us that the promised redemption from the curse in Genesis 3.15 that would come from the line of Noah and then through the line of Abraham is now coming to fruition through Zechariah and Elizabeth. Right? We're, we're supposed to read this and say, oh snap, some, something big is happening here. Have you ever, you ever been driving on the highway? You just kind of fall into a lull and then sirens come up blasting behind you and they blow by you and you're just, you kind of snap to attention and you're like, okay, I'm locked in, I'm loaded now, right? In the same way, sometimes when we read scripture, we kind of fall into a lull. Okay, I kind of see what's going on here, I see this. And then you see all this explosion of these details connecting to earlier parts of scripture where these major promises of redemption are happening and God is blasting his sirens at us. Hey, pay attention to what's happening here. Something big is about to go down here, Right? And the signs that something big is about to happen continue. Look at verse eight and following. Zechariah's division was on duty. 
quick background here. There were roughly 18,000 priests in Israel, and they were organized into 24 divisions, and those divisions would serve two one-week rotations at the temple each year. They had all sorts of duties throughout the week, but the most prestigious duty of all was the duty of entering the temple to offer incense during the evening prayers. So we got to grasp how awesome of a responsibility this was for Zechariah. There were, if those numbers are correct, roughly 750 priests in his division. Think about this. They served at the temple two weeks out of the year. That means there were 14 opportunities a year for someone in his division to enter the temple and offer the evening incense. If every priest in his division got the opportunity, they would get the chance to do this once every 53 years. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But we see that this opportunity didn't come to Zechariah by chance. Notice verse 9. He was chosen by lot. Proverbs tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God chose Zechariah to receive an awesome promise, and that awesome promise comes through an awesome messenger. Zechariah enters the temple. The altar is outside of the Holy of Holies where that veil is separating God from man to the right of the altar was the uh, altar for incense, Right, so he's approaching the Holy of Holies, he's approaching the altar, he's approaching the place where he's going to offer the incense, and there he sees an angel. It's kind of shocking in a sense when you think about the veil that separated people from the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. What was on the veil? Two pictures of angels guarding the way to God's presence, and now you have an actual angel standing before him, guarding the way to God's presence. But this angel has come with a promise from God. But like basically everyone else in the Bible who encounters an angel, Zechariah is afraid at the sight of this awesome messenger. But the angel tells him not to fear. God has heard his prayers. God is remembering his covenant and showing grace to his people with the prediction of John's birth. And it's clear from the angel's prediction that John would be a very special person. Look at verses 14 to 17. His birth would bring joy. Notice the descriptions of his character. He will be great before the Lord. Uh, he won't drink wine. That is, he'll live a life of complete devotion to God. He'll be filled with the Spirit from conception. Right? In the Old Testament, the Spirit rushed on people or came on people, but John is gonna experience a filling with the Spirit that is unique. Now notice the mission God has prepared for him. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll bring about repentance. He'll go before God in the spirit and power of the prophet Elijah. He'll, he'll be like Elijah, regarded as the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. He'll bring reconcil uh, relational reconciliation, turning the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he'll bring a change of heart, a change of way in the, in the way people live, turning the disobedient to wise living. In short, he was coming to prepare the people of Israel to meet the Lord. Right, these verses come from the prophet Malachi. Luke is citing the prophet Malachi. Through Malachi, which we heard read this morning, God predicted that an Elijah-like prophet would appear to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of the Lord himself, who would come quickly on this prophet's heels. And right after he appeared, the Lord himself would appear 
to bring about his promised redemption. Don't want you to miss this. Malachi was the last prophet in the Old Testament. The very last words he spoke in his prophecy before God went silent in Israel, the very last words he spoke in his prophecy were a promise that an Elijah-like prophet would appear to prepare the people of Israel for the day of the Lord. The last time God spoke to his people before going silent for 400 years, he promised that a messenger would come to prepare the people of Israel for the appearance of God. And the first thing God says after breaking his silence is, that messenger is here. The day of the Lord has come. John the Baptist is the forerunner to the Messiah. The culmination of God's plan of redemption has begun. But just like Abraham and Sarah who went before him, Zechariah struggles to believe. Look at verse 18 and following. How's this gonna happen? We're old. You gotta love how the angel responds in verse 19. I am Gabriel. You gotta, after reading this, you gotta, you gotta hear it like, I am Gabriel. Like, what's wrong with you? Do, you? do you know who I am? This should have been enough to prove to Zechariah that the prediction would come true because the only other time Gabriel appears in the Bible is in the book of Daniel, where he interprets visions for Daniel of the end times, when God would bring about the end of days. So the fact that he's the one giving the prediction is huge. But then look at what he says next. I stand in the presence of God. Like, the sheer fact that I am standing here before you now should attest to the fact that God is going to keep his promises and that what I have said to you will come true. Yet you have the audacity to doubt God's promise. Because of Zechariah's unbelief, Gabriel strikes him with muteness. He can't speak, which is really painful and ironic because, Zechari uh, because Gabriel says he came to bring Zechariah good news. But because of his unbelief, he won't be able to share that good news with people. Zechariah emerges from the temple, unable to speak, but given his appearance and perhaps the gestures he was making, everyone realizes he had seen a vision, but of what they don't know. His duty week ends, he returns home to Elizabeth, his wife, who we read, conceives a child. And she keeps herself hidden we don't know exactly why. Maybe it's because of her age and just not wanting to draw attention or answer questions, but notice what she says. The Lord has looked on me. The Lord has done this. The Lord has taken away my reproach. Just like he did for Rachel when Joseph was born in the book of Genesis, same words, and when Samuel was born to Hannah, the Lord takes away Elizabeth's reproach. You have to see here that in Israel, barrenness, struggling to have a child, was uh, often thought of as a curse, as though God was cursing you because God often called the people of Israel to be fruitful and multiply. And so if you, you couldn't have a child, it must have been a sign that God was displeased with you. But here you see this righteous woman who's been walking blamelessly in God's ways all her life has been struggling with barrenness, but it's been according to God's purposes for her life because in time he was gonna show through her, you will be a sign that my plan of redemption has begun, coming right through her. The connections to Noah and Abraham, the appearance of an angelic messenger announcing the coming birth of the forerunner of the Messiah, the Lord removing Elizabeth's reproach, 
All of these details tell us that the culmination of God's plan of redemption has begun. All that's left is for the Messiah to come, which brings us to prediction number two, the birth prediction of Jesus of Nazareth. Just as with the prediction of John's birth, nearly every detail of the prediction of Jesus' birth signals that God's long-promised plan of redemption has begun. Six months after Elizabeth conceives, Gabriel appears to Mary to predict that she too will have a child. Let's just stop right there and observe. John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. For the kids, in Genesis, has God's promised redemption gone to the older child or the younger child? You can shout it out. To the younger child. It always goes to the unexpected younger child. The older will serve the younger. The older John will serve the younger Jesus. And the fact that God's promised redemption will come to fruition through Jesus is clear from what we learn about Mary, from what we learn about Joseph, and from what we learn about Jesus. Notice what we learn about Mary. Verse 27, she was a virgin. Three times in the passage, Luke tells us that she was a virgin. If the birth of John the Baptist to a barren woman and an elderly couple was miraculous and signaled the culmination of God's promised redemption, how much more miraculous would be the birth of a child to a woman who had never been with a man? Right? With, with Zechariah and Elizabeth, the birth of a child was improbable, even highly improbable. Not so with Mary. For Mary, the birth of a child would be impossible. But that is exactly the point. Of all the miraculous births in the Bible, God is saving the most miraculous for his own son. But it's not just what we learn about Mary. It's also what we learn about Joseph. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. That's roughly analogous to what we think of as engagement in our culture. She was betrothed to a man named Joseph who was, Luke tells us in verse 27, of the house of David. That detail is important because the messianic hope, the hope of a coming Messiah who would save his people from their sins was inextricably tied to the house and lineage of David. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised to David that after he died, God would raise up one of his sons, one of his descendants, to sit on David's throne forever. Yet what we find in the rest of the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Kings is that none of David's sons fulfills that promise and that prophecy. There were lots of bad kings, some good kings, but even the best failed to bring about the eternal kingdom that God promised David. The people were still waiting for the coming of this messianic king. And Luke is signaling for us here as clearly as he can that that king is coming through Mary and Joseph. And that becomes clear in what we learn about Jesus. Look at what Gabriel says about Jesus. Verse 31 and following. You shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And 
The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Hallelujah! You read that verse and it's like, hallelujah, finally the king has come. God has remembered his covenant promises. He has not forgotten the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The serpent crushing seed of the woman and savior king has come. Y'all think about this. If you follow the genealogies in scripture, you're looking at 4,000 years that have passed between Adam and the promise to Adam and Eve that the, 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 the serpent crusher would come and the coming of Jesus. 4,000 years. And God keeps his promise. The messianic king has come. Mary's puzzled. She asks, how can this be since I'm a virgin? How can I possibly have a child? Now, I want you to notice what Gabriel doesn't do. He doesn't strike her with muteness or some other judgment like he did with Zechariah. What what gives? I'd actually love to hear from one of the teens if you can reason out for me now why you think Zechariah was struck with muteness and Mary wasn't. The answer is not in the text. It is. You just have to reason your way there. Possible. It is possible that it's because Zechariah knew the Old Testament. Certainly he should have known the Old Testament and known about these promises. I'm guessing Mary was also familiar with them. If she's going to the synagogue growing up, which I think is a faithful Israelite, she would have been doing. That's a good guess. That could be the answer. I'm not saying I'm right. I just think there's something else going on here that we can conclude. We'll go to Cooper, even though you're not a teen. Let's do it, dude. Very good, Cooper. I think that's the answer. What Cooper said is, she's not speaking. If I'm quoting you kind of roughly correctly, she's not speaking from a heart of unbelief. Right? Zechariah's question came out of a heart of unbelief, which is obvious by the way Gabriel responds to him. You have not believed me. Mary's question does not come out of a heart of unbelief. Let's just draw a quick conclusion here for the teens and the kids. It's because, the reason why Gabriel strikes Zechariah and not Mary, it's because it's not just what you say, but how you say it. Have your parents ever told you to apologize to one of your siblings for something you've done and you're like, sorry I was mean to you, will you forgive me? And they're like, nope, sorry, try again. You're like, but I did, I did what you said, to, I, did, I did what you told me to do, I apologize. You're like, but that's not, yes, I was telling you to apologize, but it's not just what you say, it, it, it's how you say it, is important as well. I think that's what's going on here. Zechariah's question clearly comes out of a place of unbelief where Mary's question, just sincere. I, I don't understand. I, I, I'm going to follow you, but I don't understand. Help me to understand, right? So Gabriel helps her understand how this would happen. The child, we find, would be born of God. The Holy Spirit would come upon her and the Most High would overshadow her. I think Luke wants us to to think back to Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God hovered over, overshadowed the face of the waters just before creation. 
same spirit of God whose power was at work in the creation of the world would be active in creating life inside of Mary's womb. And he would be called holy, the son of God. That's the second time Luke tells us he would be the son of God. This is crucial because this meant he would be God in the flesh. The son of God was a title of divinity. Later in his ministry, Jesus took that title and applied it to himself, and the Jewish leaders responded by accusing him of blasphemy and sentencing him to death because they understood by calling himself the son of God, he was claiming to be God. The Virgin Mary would give birth to a child who was God in the flesh. Gabriel wants her to know she's not alone. Her relative Elizabeth was old and barren and had conceived a son, and how could such an impossible, how could such impossible circumstances like this have come to pass? Look at the reason that Gabriel gives in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Gabriel straight reaches right back to God's words to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18 when they doubted he could give them a son given Sarah's barrenness and their age. Nothing is impossible for God. And Mary believes him. She responds with simple, beautiful, and surprising faith. Behold, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me as you have said. Friends, I I hope you see how Luke does not want us to miss that in these two birth predictions of John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth, that the culmination of God's plan of redemption has begun. Nearly every detail of the passage is declaring this glorious message From Zechariah and Elizabeth being described like Noah through whom would come the promised seed who would bring relief from the curse to their being described like Abraham and Sarah through whom would come the promised seed who would bring blessing to all the nations to the fact that Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John's names taken together mean the God of the covenant remembers and is gracious to the appearance of Gabriel signaling that the end of days is coming with the births of John and Jesus to John's ministry of bringing about repentance in Israel in, the, in advance of the appearing of God himself. To the Virgin Mary, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that the virgin would be with child and that child would be called Emmanuel, God with us. To the fact that the child's name would be Jesus, God saves. To the fact that the child would come from the house of David and he would sit on David's throne forever, fulfilling God's prophecy in 2 Samuel 7 of a coming king from the line of David who would sit on an eternal throne and rule over an eternal kingdom to the fact that he would be born of the Holy Spirit, to the fact that he would be the Son of God, God in the flesh appearing in his earthly temple after his forerunner, John the Baptist, appears. And don't you love how Gabriel says, nothing will be impossible with God. Not not nothing is impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God, Mary. Look ahead. You haven't seen anything yet. Everything that God promised of John and Jesus will come true. Not just their births, but the fulfillment of their ministries. John grows into an Elijah-like prophet. He is a man completely set apart to the Lord and his work. He was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And he prepared the people to meet the Lord by preaching a message of repentance towards God and faith in God's covenant promises 
and many Israelites went out to see him in the wilderness and were baptized by him. They were prepared to meet God. Yet his great ministry was eclipsed by Jesus' greater ministry, who not only preached a message of repentance and trust in God's promises, but as the Son of God and Savior of the world came to do what nobody else in the history of the world could do. He came to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of all who would put their faith in him as their Lord and Savior. Three days after he died on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of all who believe in him, God proved once again that nothing will be impossible for God by raising Jesus from the dead. And it doesn't end there. After Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven on the clouds. And do you know what happened when he ascended into heaven on the clouds? Daniel 7 tells us. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He's already in the form of man, rising, ascending into heaven on the clouds. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel saw Jesus, y'all, when Jesus ascended into heaven as the risen and reigning king of all creation. He watched the Lord Jesus Christ be presented before the majesty on high, and the majesty on high said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You are the king of all creation, the eternal king from David's line and David's house who sits on an eternal throne over an eternal kingdom. And the culmination of God's promised redemption. That begins here in Luke 1 with the prediction of John and Jesus' birth. That plan of redemption continues today. The Lord Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a perfectly sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, was raised for our justification, ascended into heaven and sat down on his throne where he reigns right now. That same Jesus offers redemption from sins, redemption and forgiveness of sins to all tribes and tongues and nations. He offers the forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, freedom from sin's power, citizenship in an everlasting kingdom. I wonder if you feel the, the pathos, the, the passion of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel when you sing it. Do you feel the darkness and the light, the pain and the beauty, the curse of sin which has persisted for thousands of years, which has brought darkness and devastation on the earth that has caused countless millions of human beings to call out to the heavens above for redemption, for help, for rescue, God has answered. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel has come. Emmanuel has died. Emmanuel has risen. Emmanuel has ascended. And Emmanuel is reigning now over all the earth. Friend, if you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus, I've wondered 
if you've ever wanted to live in a perfect world? Probably a pretty silly question, right? Who, who among us hasn't? I'm assuming you have. I'm assuming that at some point in your life, you've longed for the perfect leader, the perfect nation, the perfect existence, free from violence and hatred, free from pain and sorrow, free from sickness and disease. I want you to know that world exists. That world exists and can be yours through faith in Jesus Christ. The reason Jesus was born into our world was to make that world a reality. God created our world perfectly good. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to rebel against God, do things their own way, and their decision brought sin and death into the world, and sin and death have spread to all people everywhere because all of us have sinned. But God didn't abandon us and leave us to suffer without hope. He promised to redeem the world from the curse of sin. And the prediction of Jesus' birth marked the beginning of the culmination of that plan. That redemption has come, and it is here today. God sent Jesus into the world to redeem us from the curse of sin by dying in our place, bearing the punishment we deserve. And when he rose from the dead, he proved that he defeated sin and death, and he proved that that perfect kingdom exists. And he offers entrance into that kingdom to all who would turn from their sin, turn from doing things their own way, and trust in him as both Savior and Lord. But while the culmination of God's plan of redemption began when Jesus' birth was announced and continues today, you also need to know that someday it will come to an end. Jesus tells us that we're given this life only to repent and turn to him in faith. If we pass from this life or Jesus returns, which God has promised he will, before we trust in him, we will have to face Jesus not as our savior, but as our judge. So my plea to you today, if you don't follow Jesus, is to consider what it would look like to put your faith in him. We would love to talk to you about that. There, this room is literally full of people who would love to tell you about what it would look like to, uh, for you to consider following Jesus today. And for those who have trusted in Jesus, uh, the one central point of application I have for us today is that we should continue walking by faith. We should continue walking by faith. And I wanna unpack that briefly by drawing your attention to two aspects of walking by faith that are present in the passage. And we're gonna hit these quickly. First, we should walk by faith by waiting in faith. The posture of the Christian life is one of waiting. Waiting on God to fulfill his promises, right? Just think about what we've said already. You go, you go back to these genealogies in scripture, you see that some 4,000 years have passed before the first promise of redemption in Genesis 3.15 and this prediction of Jesus' coming here, the birth prediction in Luke 1. Not only that, 2,022 years have passed since Jesus' birth. God works on a very different timetable than you and I, right? To him, a thousand years are like a day and a day like a thousand years. He doesn't operate within the concept of time as we do. He works on very different timetable than we do and the call to us is to wait on him in faith. 
Time and again in the Old Testament, God's people are told, wait on the Lord. In the New Testament, Paul says in Romans 8, that though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for the redemption of our bodies. The Christian life is a life of waiting. Waiting on God to fulfill all of his promises to us in Christ. But we need to recognize about this waiting that this type of waiting isn't passive. It's a confident, active, and disciplined clinging to God and holding fast to his promises. Consider Zechariah and Elizabeth. They waited in faith by walking blamelessly in all God's commandments throughout the course of their life. They're they're very old saints by now. Or consider the multitude of faithful Israelites who waited outside of the temple by continuing to go to the temple and praying for God to act, even though God hadn't spoken in 400 years. Waiting on the Lord is an active daily decision to say, God, I'm going to keep trusting you. I'm going to keep obeying you. I'm gonna keep putting off the old, fighting temptation, putting on the new. I'm gonna keep clinging to your promises because I know that nothing is impossible for you and you will eventually act. I think for the kids and teens, this is important for you all to understand as well. Following Jesus includes a lot of waiting. I think I want you to think about Christmas time, right? Raise your hand, kids, if you're excited for Christmas. Like you just want the day to come, right? Why won't Christmas morning just get here already? Your parents are like, hey, just wait, just wait. It's gonna come. Like it's gonna be here. It'll be here soon enough. As much as we want it to come, we have to wait. And waiting isn't easy. It can get even harder as you get older because you're always gonna be waiting on God for something. Waiting for God to answer some prayer. And what I think is most important for you is recognizing that God saying wait is not him saying, I don't love you or I don't have the power to help you. But think about how easy it would have been for Zechariah and Elizabeth or all these Israelites who had come to the temple day after day after day, lifting up prayers to God and nothing. He's not acting, He's not doing anything. Why isn't he doing anything? Does he remember us? Does he care about us? Does he love us? He, he must not. I, I remember my, my grandparents telling me 200 years ago that, that he didn't act then, and he's still not acting now. When is he going to act? Waiting is hard. But when God says wait, he's not saying, I don't love you, or I don't care about you, or I don't have the power to help you. Sometimes when you're, you ask your parents for things, kids, sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no, and sometimes they say not yet. In the same way, Sometimes God's answers to our prayers is yes, sometimes no, and sometimes not yet. Keep waiting. I am going to eventually act. And we can have confidence that God will eventually act to redeem us because even after hundreds of years of silence, he acts to redeem Israel by beginning this culmination of his plan of redemption. Finally, we should walk by faith by obeying in faith. From Zechariah and Elizabeth's description as righteous and walking blamelessly to Mary's response to God's call in her life in verse 26, Luke is highlighting God's pleasure with his people when they obey him in faith. How are you doing obeying God? How are you doing continuing to put off the old self? 
putting off things maybe like yelling at your kids or being mean to your spouse, Uh, putting off doubting God's love for you or his power to act on your behalf, Uh, putting off sexual immorality and self-gratification, putting off lying and lusting, greed and envy, anger and impatience. How are you doing with those things? As you look at your life this past week, do you notice a trend of desiring to obey God and walk in his ways, of, of responding to God's commandments the way Mary does? I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your, whatever you say, I will do. Is that the trend that you notice in your life this past week? I recognize that that question may be discouraging for some of you, maybe for all of you. There are ways that I look at it, I'm, I, I have failed in my own life. You know, I'm not talking about perfect obedience here. That's not what it means to obey in faith. We even see from the passage, right? The man, Zechariah, who was described as righteous and blameless, was also judged by Gabriel with muteness for his temporary unbelief. And we'll see that Zechariah repents and he praises God later in this very chapter for his work, right? We're not talking about perfect obedience, but are you pursuing obedience to Christ? Is that kind of the the warp and woof of your life? Is that the texture of your life? Are you seeking to submit to his rule as king in your life? And when you fail, are you obeying his command to turn to him in continued repentance, receiving daily his fresh outpourings of grace? If you've been walking with Jesus for every length, any length of time, you know this obedience isn't easy. Not only are we at war with the flesh, but we're also gonna face scorn from the world. I mean, think about this from the passage. By her obedience to carry the Son of God in her womb as a virgin, Mary was subjecting herself to scorn and suspicion from her neighbors that may have endured through the course of her entire life. Surely she has committed sexual immorality, Right? By preaching a message of repentance, John the Baptist would later eventually be beheaded. By preaching that he was the true king of God's eternal kingdom, Jesus was crucified. And we may face similar opposition and scorn as we seek to obey all that God says. But we should obey nonetheless because we know that Jesus is the true king of all creation. And all that he calls us to is good regardless of what the world says about it and regardless of how hard it might be for us to obey. And we also know that he will one day appear. And on that day, this world will pass away and he will bring all who've walked by faith into his heavenly kingdom and they will reign and rule with him forever. And we know that day will eventually come. Though generations seem to pass, though God seems to be silent, he will once again speak. Christ will appear again. And the culmination of God's plan of redemption that began here will finally come to completion. And we know that this will happen because nothing is impossible for God. So let's continue walking by faith, waiting in faith and obeying in faith until we pass from this life or Christ appears. Let's pray. Father, we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. Redeem your people. And if it is your choice to wait, we pray that you would pour out your grace on all tribes and tongues and nations so that countless people from every nation on earth 
would see that there is a good and righteous king whose kingdom will never end and that they can enter that kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.